0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Scheckman. Every day, scientists go to work and make discoveries, or at least observations, that should help us make the world a better place, or at least an easier place to understand. The ongoing expansion of our knowledge of chemistry, of physics, of biology, should be the holy grail that makes us all better. And yet, as an overlay to this ideal notion of pure science, we see prejudice, constraints, shames, and social covenants which seemed to be more important to some than truth. My guest, author and lawyer and mother, Eilet Waldman, recently threw off those constraints to use science and chemistry to make her life better. She tells that story in her new book, A Really Good Day. Eilet Waldman is the author of four previous novels, as well as the Mommy Track Mystery series. She was a federal public defender and has taught law at Loyola Law School and UC Berkeley School of Law. It is my pleasure to welcome let Waldman back to this program to talk about a really good day, how microdosing made a mega difference in my mood, my marriage, and my life, let Waldman, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a real pleasure to talk to you again, Jeff. It's great to have you here. How did you come to the idea, first of all, of even exploring this notion of microdosing, these tiny little doses of LSD, as a way to treat a pretty serious perimenopausal condition?
1: So what happened was I've been struggling with mood my whole life. I have a a disorder called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which it's basically PMS on steroids. In the week before my period, I get completely, my mood just flies in all directions. It's like having bipolar disorder for a week a month. And um, I also, as you said, I taught, I created a, a class at UC Berkeley Law School called The Legal and Social Implications of the War on Drugs, and I have done drug policy reform work. So I had kind of entree into that world from the policy point of view. I'm not a big recreational drug user. I'm not interested in, in we're not really interested in recreational drugs at all. I don't drink. But, um, but I had access to a lot of research about drugs and um, had written briefs on behalf of the American Public Health Association and the American Medical Association about Different drugs and on drug policy, and what happened was when I, when my depression reached a point that it was out of control, when my mood was sinking to a place of, of frankly where I was suicidal, I started using my research skills and started looking for a solution and I'd been reading a lot about microdosing, and um, you know here in the Bay Area, we hear a lot about microdosing by people in Silicon Valley because It acts in a way similar to stimulant drugs like Adderall or Ritalin. It enhances the ability to focus. It enhances creativity, uh, problem solving. So a lot of people were using it for that, Um, but I was reading a lot of research about psychedelic drugs and their effects on depression and anxiety. There's research going on now at NYU, at Johns Hopkins, in London at Imperial College, down at UCLA on the effects of psilocybin, which is a psychedelic drug, very similar to LSD, um, on the way that it alleviates depression and anxiety in people who are profoundly depressed and anxious. And I started thinking, well, if a big dose of a psychedelic drug can make someone who has terminal cancer feel less depressed and anxious, I wonder if a small (laughs) dose of LSD can make someone like me, who's just feeling depressed about living, a little less depressed and anxious. And it turned out that the answer is a resounding yes.
0: And in fact, it not only affected you and your depression, it had a profound effect on the people around you, your husband, your children, everybody else in your life.
1: Well, the thing about having a mental illness is that, you know, you don't suffer alone. I, I grew up in a house with a, you know, mental illness is hereditary, and I grew up in a house where my father had bipolar disorder. And when when daddy has bipolar disorder, the whole family has bipolar disorder. You know, you cycle with the person who's mentally ill. And the thing that I wanted so much was to spare my children that pain. And unfortunately, I didn't. I couldn't. When when uh, their parent is mentally ill, children suffer. Um, I've done my best to give my kids the tools to deal with that, you know, the most important tool is a wonderful father who does not suffer in this way um, and who they can go to for support when, when mommy is not able to give them the right kind of support. But, uh, but, you know, they were in pain, too. They were suffering, too, and so was my husband. And I really needed to do something to help all of us.
0: And as you went down this path, as you tried to find out more about it, the problem with this kind of work, with this kind of research, with this kind of drug, is that it's not as simple as just, all right, let's see what we can do, because research is pretty hampered, and the stigma that goes along with it is pretty intense. Yeah, for
1: sure. I mean, it's thought like I could call my doctor and say, "Hey, doc, um, you know, I'm interested in taking this <laughs> medication. Can you prescribe it for me?" You know, it's illegal. And one of the things that's so curious is that, you know, we there we we attach these kind of moral we, judgments to different drugs. We say, you know, LSD is immoral, but Tylenol is moral. But, you know, Tylenol kills a lot more people than LSD ever has. There, there are no established human fatalities uh, associated with LSD. There are two cases that... Some people in the literature think might have been LSD overdoses, but those two are both are not very well documented. Hundreds of people a year die of taking acetaminophen, of overdosing with acetaminophen. Thousands end up in the emergency room. So what is the inherent logic of saying one drug is dangerous and the other drug is not?
0: Talk a little bit about how you found out you could even begin to access this on, on a microdosing level.
1: All right. Well, first, I found out about microdosing because it's suddenly all over the literature. You know, um, but even back when I did it, there was beginning to be some research about it. Uh, A doctor named Jim Fadiman, who in the '60s was a researcher at Stanford and who was working in Silicon Valley doing LSD studies. Uh, LSD. He would administer LSD to groups of engineers and ask them to bring an intractable problem. And under the influence of LSD, these, co- these you know early computer scientists and engineers and biochemists would work on the problem that had been giving them a hard time in their regular day-to-day lab work, and they had remarkable insights on LSD because it does enhance creativity and problem solving. So recently, uh, in the past five years or so, James Fadiman has begun assembling um, personal stories of people who have tried microdosing. He's asked them to sort of take notes of their experience and send them to him. So I heard a lecture by James Fadiman in which he said that the overwhelming result that he's noticed from all of these, of course, sort of ad hoc personal experiments, people don't hallucinate. They don't have kind of, uh, you know, they don't, they don't see Lucy in the sky with diamonds. But at the end of the day, they look back on their day and they say, huh, that was a really good day. And when I read that, when I heard that, I thought to myself, a really good day? I have not had one of those in so long. That's all I want. I just want a really good day. I want a good day. Forget really.
0: (laughs) And when you started doing it, talk about the immediate effect that you felt, the way in which you began to, to experience it. Well, so
1: I got my hands on a little bit of LSD, diluted in distilled water, and I I was very nervous. I'd never taken LSD before. I never had a kind of psychedelic trip, so uh, I you know I put a lot of safeguards in place to make sure that you know if I if the walls began to breathe, I would be safe. Um, but all that happened was I put the drops under my tongue, and nothing happened. So I went to work, and I sat down at my desk, and I started typing. And then about 90 minutes or so after I took the drug, I, you know, lifted my head as I do periodically. And I looked at my window and it was a beautiful spring day in Berkeley, California. And my dogwood tree was in bloom. And I thought to myself, oh, what a pretty dogwood. And that's when I knew something was happening. Because I am not a stop and smell the roses kind of person. Mm -hmm. I am a bullet through the rose bushes to get to the next task on your checklist kind of person. And the fact that I had a moment of mindfulness, that I had a moment where I enjoyed the sight of a pretty tree that was so out of character, and especially at that time in my life where nothing looked pretty to me, where everything looked dark and everything looked bleak, that's when I knew something was happening. And the day proceeded. I did my work. I had a really good work day. I I got a lot done. I was really, I made dinner with my husband. I was really present at dinner with my children. And we had a nice family dinner as we have every evening. But, and I wasn't gloomy and I wasn't depressed and I wasn't irritable and I wasn't angry. And at the end of the day, I look back on this day and I thought, huh, that was a really good day. It was amazing.
0: Did you have concerns over what the long-term consequences might be in terms of your own long-term mental health, creativity, view of the world, how it might, might change you in some ways? Absolutely.
1: I mean, I I was very, very thorough in my research. And in my book, I write, you know, I write about my depression. I write about the experiment. I write about the history of LSD. But I also write about the neurochemistry of these drugs. What do they do to our brains? I really wanted to know that. I wanted to know what was happening in my brain. And like I said, there were decades of research on LSD and um. All the neuroscientists that I talked to and the psychiatrists that I talked to were very confident that there, are, there, there is no long-term damage associated with LSD. I mean, here's one anecdotal fact. Albert Hoffman, the um, chemist who first discovered LSD, who synthesized it in his lab in Switzerland, he was looking for... Um, their molecules that would help with things like hypertension. Um, he used LSD in full-on doses for much of his life. He microdosed for the last decades of his life, and he lived to be older than 100 with all his faculties intact. Now, of course, one case doesn't prove anything, but there seems to be research that indicates that LSD is... Enhances neuroplasticity rather than harming it the way some SSRIs do, um, and it there is no research that that shows any long-term harm but I want to see long-term research I want to see more research on psychedelic drugs I want to see more thorough studies I mean that's why I published this book I mean this book is like I said it's about mental illness talks about the sort of history of LSD it talks about the war on drugs and why do we fight this war on drugs and the, the short answer to that is racism and what have the effects of the war on drugs been and it's also you know funny because, you know, it has a lot of dark humor and some light humor in it. And it's a way to sort of say, people, we need to be more sensible when it comes to drugs and drug policies. And we need to not ignore potential. Here's, like, here's an example. There's a psychedelic drug that is very similar to L S D and to psilocybin. It's called Ibogaine. It's uh, it's a, a psychedelic drug that was the drug that was first discovered in Africa and used by African people. There is research now that shows that ibogaine is remarkably effective at alleviating heroin addiction. That people who do for one ibogaine Treatment are uh, t- the, the, they go off heroin for as long as three months, and with four treatments, this this like, this group was clean from heroin for three years. I mean that's amazing. We have an opioid epidemic in this country. If there is a drug that can keep people from continuing to use heroin, from dying of heroin overdose, we should be devoting all of our resources to discovering this. And we've known about the effects of of Ibogaine since at least November 1983 when this study was published.
0: The other thing that surrounds drug policy and all these issues that you're talking about is a kind of fear that surrounds it. It's, it's like people are afraid of what they're going to find, whether it's good or bad. It's, it's a fear of lack of control. It's a fear of somebody right. else being in control. Talk a little bit about that, Islett.
1: Well, I had a tremendous amount of that fear. You know, there's a lot of mythology surrounding Mm -hmm. LSD in particular. I was terrified that if I took LSD, I, I, you know, I would have LSD psychosis and I would be crazy for the rest of my life. And that, you know, I believe the myth that I, you know, people who took LSD jumped out of windows believing they could fly. And in fact, none of that is true. You know, that, that's a, that's, those are urban legends that, you know, got their start in the media and got their start when, um, You know, when Timothy Leary told a generation of young people to tune in, turn on, and drop out, that really scared their parents. And what frightened their parents was not so much that their children was on LSD, but that their children were dropping out of college and demonstrating against the war and participating in the civil rights movement. And white America became really, really afraid that they would lose that generation of young people to the counterculture. And LSD became the symbol for that. And so it became criminalized and demonized in the minds of... Of the government and white America. And the truth is, you know, you can't demonize a chemical. When I would teach my class at at UC Berkeley School of Law, for seven years I taught the seminar on the legal and social implications of the war on drugs. And I would start by going up to the whiteboard and making three categories drug, food, medicine. And I would start. Saying names of different chemicals and and uh, you know substances, and I would say to the kids, okay, where are we going to put this? Caffeine is caffeine a food? Sure, coffee's a food. Is it a medicine? I don't know. We take it, mix it, and it makes your head feel better. Is it a drug? Certainly causes you to uh, become more awake, more activated. What about? Tylenol, what about uh, nicotine, what about heroin, oh we know where that one goes, well except you know what's morphine, it's the same drug, isn't that a medicine and once you start really thinking about it, these distinctions that we have made that are so important to us that our law rests on between medicine, drugs and foods are really arbitrary and we're, we're preventing ourselves from alleviating a lot of suffering by calling certain drugs off limits. I mean you know we know that about medical marijuana we know that in California mm-hmm. there are other states you know many many states have have allowed uh cannabis or marijuana to be used for certain for to treat different ailments you know it's time I think to rethink LSD and to make a decision that we're going to allow research to be done to continue the research that's going on at NYU at Johns Hopkins at UCLA into the effects of LSD on alleviating depression and anxiety we need it we have an epidemic in this country of depression we need help
0: You talked a little bit about the generational aspects of this. When you finally told your kids, talk a little bit about their reaction and how you think their generation looks at drugs and how it's different than the way we do and our generation has. Well,
1: you know, it's funny. I think I'm in this middle generation because I've noticed a lot of people in their 60s and 70s at my events who are very ready To consider the possibilities of the therapeutic value of LSD, because they did it back when they were in college, and it was awesome. And then young people, my you know my older kids were, their first thought was, well, first of all, all my kids, all they wanted was for me to feel better. They had been suffering along with me, and at first they didn't know that I was using LSD. They thought I was trying a new medication, and they were amazed at how effective this medication was. They'd been down that road with me before. I tried different medications and sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't but they were just so happy that there was something that was making mommy feel better um, But when I told them it was LSD, you know, well the older two had a pretty typical response, which was, "Whoa, cool!" You know, they listened to Chance the Rapper. Um, The younger two were anxious and nervous, and but we decided to use it as a learning opportunity. We um, we sat down as a family and we talked about different drugs and the risks of different drugs and the way that you know how drugs are used that make in ways that make them more dangerous and how drugs are used more safely. Um, You know, one of my children was diagnosed with ADHD and was using um, a stimulant drug. And we talked about what is Adderall and what is methamphetamine. And these drugs are chemically identical. So why is one safe to use and another not? What makes methamphetamine dangerous? And we really used this as an opportunity to, for our kids to learn more, to gain more knowledge, to become more aware. And, you know, my approach with my kids and drugs is I have one primary rule. And that primary rule is no dying. You know, we're, we're in the, we have an opioid crisis in this country, and a lot of kids are ending up dying of heroin addiction who you would never imagine would suffer from that. And I want to protect my children, and I think we all want to protect our kids. So my primary rule, that, you know, my primary motivation has been harm reduction. So we used this as another way to have a harm reduction approach.
0: And talk about where you are with it at the moment, finally.
1: So I made a decision that I was willing to use this to make myself feel better, to keep myself from killing myself, but that I wasn't willing to do – I was only willing to engage in this one-month experiment Um, and that I would then write about it in order to, um, you know – to, to be part of the solution, to talk more about the way we need to rethink drug policy. Um, I will say that if I ever get into a dangerous place again, if I ever feel like my alternatives are LSD or suicide, I will choose LSD. I'm not, I'm not willing to, to say that I'd rather die than break the law. But, um, but right now my mood is stable. I'm using a lot of other therapies um, that are keeping me more or less stable uh, frankly, between you and me, it would be better if I was using microdosing, I believe. But um, my goal right now is to advocate and to be part of the solution. And to do that, I have to not be
0: using. I'll let Waldman, the book is A Really Good Day. How microdosing made a mega difference in my mood, my marriage, and my life. I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a real pleasure. Thank you.